Testing, testing. Sounds like I'm on. You guys want to find a seat? Go ahead and find a seat and we'll get started. Good to see everyone. Ethan. If Ethan turns, that means he can hear me. He's way in back and he's not turning. Ethan, can you hear me? Can you hear me back there or do I need to be turned up? That needs to go up. Okay, thank you. Testing, testing. One second to get that tuned. Testing, good to see everyone. Good to see everyone. Testing, testing. Good? All right, very good. Okay, thanks for being on time. Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and thank you for the way your son is revealed in the Old Testament. I think that our entire um, view of the Old Testament can change when we recognize that it's a revelation of Christ and that uh, primarily you're revealing him to us in different ways and that it's not, uh, although there are wonderful individuals to learn from uh, in the Old Testament, primarily you want us to learn about Jesus. Thank you for the ways he's revealed and to the wonderful um, pictures of him or, or truth revealed about him through the bronze serpent as we, I believe we will conclude that this morning. Uh, just use me as your vessel. Some of these things are somewhat veiled to us. I pray I wouldn't go any further than you would desire, but would go as far as uh, I should in terms of helping us see how the bronze serpent uh, typifies him. Give us understanding, bless any conversation that takes place, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I in the right position? Someone told me last week I had to move over more. Is this a good, good position for me? Who told me that last week? What? Good? Okay, I sounded like it cut out a little bit. Someone told me I had to move over. I used to try to stand right there. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Galatians 3? do a little bit of review. So we started talking last week about how the bronze serpent is a picture or type of Christ. And who can tell me what uh, can seem a little bizarre? I think I shared that that's one of the accounts along with God telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. This seemed very bizarre to me early in my Christian life. God would have a serpent, something positive. Okay, I do need to move over. Thank you. Why a serpent would be something positive, and then after studying and learning about it, it became a wonderful representation of Christ to me, one I'm thankful to be able to share with all of you. Never preached on it before. So who can tell me what, why a serpent, why a serpent, and how it serves as a picture? Let's deal with serpent before we deal with bronze. Now this way. <laughs> or is this good? Testing, testing. Okay, you just let me know if I need to move again, Dave. So serpent, why serpent? Serpent itself being a picture type of, of sin. And so Christ lifted up on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably the key verse talking about the double imputation, our sin to Christ, his righteousness to us, classic double imputation there. And it actually says in that verse that Christ became sin. So we talk about Christ being our sin bearer and all of the sin of all of um, the redeemed throughout all of human history imputed to him or put to his account. In that sense, he became what you might say is the sinfullest, uh, the person fullest, you know, most full of sin of anyone in all of history in that moment. So the serpent being a great picture type of Christ when he was lifted up on the cross and all of our sin imputed to his account. Why bronze? Who remembers that one? Bronze is associated with what? What word? Just looking for one word, huh? Judgment. Judgment. 
Bronze is associated with judgment. It is tried by fire. We talked about the, the bronze altar and some other accounts that reveal bronze. Bronze is association with judgment. So in the bronze serpent, you have sin being lifted up and judged, which happened with Christ when he was lifted up on that cross and judged for our sin. So our, a tremendous picture. We can understand why Jesus in John 3 would say, that just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and that just as people could look to the bronze serpent to be saved from being bitten by those fiery serpents, those who have been bitten by sin can look up to Christ and be saved. Okay, any questions, thoughts, or anything before we continue? Okay, last week we started talking about the application, but there's a few verses here in Galatians 3 that I'd like us to look at that I also think are very beneficial. Galatians 3.10, sorry if I didn't already tell you to turn there, Galatians 3, we're going to look at 10 through 13, it says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is a quote of Deuteronomy 27.26. So what this is saying is all who rely on on the law to be saved are under a curse. Uh, anyone who doesn't keep the law perfectly is cursed or accursed of God or does not have the righteousness necessary to go to heaven and will be uh, cast into hell because of even just one sin, although all of us have plenty more than just one sin in our lives. And so Deuteronomy twenty-seven twenty-six makes this point that everyone who doesn't perfectly obey God's law is cursed because none of us perfectly obey God's law all of us are cursed. Everyone is under a curse in that all of us are facing the judgment and wrath of God. Nobody has lived so perfectly or righteously that they would not be cursed or would be able to avoid God's judgment at the end of their lives. Now, some Jews, and I don't, I don't want this to sound too harsh, uh, perhaps it's, it's out of ignorance, um, and I don't want to sound harsh because it's pretty much what I believe for the first 20-some years of my life and would have continued believing had God not sovereignly intervened in my life, that uh, we, are, we don't go to heaven through our own effort. We do not go to heaven through being good enough. Now, some Jews, whether it could be pride, it could be ignorance, or could be, um, you know, spiritual blindness, believe that they're saved by keeping the law. They believe that their righteousness comes from their obedience to the law. And so one of the ironies is trying to keep the law to be saved is that the same law they're trying to keep to be saved tells them that they are cursed if they don't keep it perfectly. So you kind of see the irony there, right? They're trying to keep this law that actually tells them they're cursed, not saved if they keep it well enough or pretty closely, but cursed if they don't keep it perfectly. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's not my interpretation. That's exactly what it says. There's not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.23, kind of the, old, the New Testament, Ecclesiastes 7.20. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, one of the things I, I've said a few times that I would encourage you to um, embrace in your reading of God's Word is a view of the law as a unit. You're, you're going to understand God's Word better if you see the law as a unit. And you will not, in Scripture, see the law spoken of plurally. There's one law that contains 613 commands. 
But as soon as you start thinking of uh, multiple laws, like you say that God gave laws to Moses, which is not true, you're going to be a little confused about, you know, can I keep some of the law or part of the law? But if you view the law as a unit, then some of the New Testament the law will make more sense. So, for example, James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Well, that verse only makes sense if you understand that the law is a unit and to break part of it is to break all of it or to be a lawbreaker. There's no such thing as someone who's only broken, you know, part of the law and kept most of it. And just a, an analogy, maybe it's an overly simple one. If you, I remember one time I was, I was with a, a friend of mine and we were in, this back, we were in the, his backyard and we were throwing these rocks out his backyard and then for whatever reason, at one point we decided that we were going to start throwing rocks over the roof of his house toward his front yard, uh, not really thinking about whether there was a car in the driveway. And so then I remember uh, we were playing in the backyard until my parents came home, and then his parents came and got us, and they wanted to talk to us about this broken windshield. Is my mom here? Do you remember this? The Franklins? Do you? Okay. And they wanted to know what happened, and so neither of us really wanted to take responsibility for it. So I actually remember we said that one of us was throwing and one of us bumped the other one, so it didn't really look like anyone's fault. You know, I guess we're going to throw it this way, and one of us bumped the other one, and then we threw it that way, you know? And so it breaks this windshield, and just kind of imagine if we tried to say, well, you know, we didn't really break the whole windshield, we just broke part of it, right? <laughs> well, that's kind of the case with God's law. You can't claim to only break part of it, and that's not my opinion. James 2.10, again, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of that. But that verse can really only make sense if we see the law as a unit that must be kept in its entirety to be righteous. God isn't grading on a curve. You don't get to, you know, keep enough commands to, you know, mostly righteous, even though most of us, if we're honest, look at the Ten Commandments and recognize we don't even keep or have broken most of those many times, if not not all of them. So, any questions on verse 10 before we move on? Okay, verse 11, Galatians 3.11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Now, maybe I'm kind of picky with this. I'll tell you ahead of time, I'm looking for two specific words. So if you get close, but you don't tell me these two specific words, I'll probably look for another answer, okay? So I am being very legalistic here with the two words that I'm looking for. Who can tell me what justified means? Now everyone's terrified. Let's see, okay. (laughs) She's heard me talk about this with my kids so many times. Okay, we're going to he did it. Perfect. It just refreshed. Isn't it just thrilling to hear that? That's what justified means. Justified means declared righteous. And I'm kind of grieved that there was a few years early in my Christian life that I said justified um, means made righteous. And that's not true. What is the process by which God makes us righteous over the course of our lives? Sanctification. Yeah, that's not justification. Justification is an instantaneous moment in time when we repent of our sins, put our faith in Christ, and God declares us righteous through our faith in Christ. That is justification. That is the gospel. Uh, that is a major topic of discussion with me, with my, with my Mormon friends each week. And this past week, if any of you want to be praying about this, they brought in some of the heavy hitters in the Mormon church. So this week, the number of people I met with or doubled. Now I was with uh, four people, two 
two of the senior um, Mormons in the church came to meet with me. Uh, really wonderful conversation. Had to bump another counseling session. Ended up being a two and a half hour meeting with them versus the normal hour, hour and a half. Um, just really, I, I have to be honest, I really appreciate them. I really enjoy my time with them. Um, but we are talking frequently about justification because they have a different view of it than we do. Uh, they don't see us being justified or declared righteous in a moment. But if you understand that that's what, you know, that's why the Reformation took place, because the Catholic Church was getting justification wrong. We're talking about the heart of the gospel here. This is not a peripheral issue. And so the Reformers were arguing about how man is justified or declared righteous before God, how man receives the righteousness that allows him to go to heaven. It is a huge issue. And we are justified or declared righteous by grace through faith. With that understanding of justification, look at verse 11 again. It is evident that no one is justified or declared righteous before God by the law. Why would none of us be justified or declared righteous by the law? I hope this is obvious, huh? It, yeah, we break the law. We violate the law. All the law does is show us our sinfulness, not show us how righteous we are, but shows us how unrighteous we are. Or you could say we can't be justified by the law because we can't keep it well enough. We, actually, could you be justified by the law? You could. If you could keep, who, who actually kept the law perfectly uh, or well enough to be justified or have the righteousness? Yeah, who said that? Yeah, very good. Very good, Eliana. That's right. Yeah, Jesus was, had the righteousness by keeping the law perfectly that allowed him to ascend to heaven and have victory over death. That's why the grave could not keep him, and he sprung forth from the grave because the wages of sin is death, and he had not sinned. He had kept the law perfectly, which is why he was resurrected. So nobody is justified, declared righteous by the law, because nobody keeps it introduces the question, what is the purpose of the law? You don't have to turn there, but Romans 3.20 tells us that the purpose of the law is to reveal our sinfulness, or through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You don't recognize how sinful you are. An, an analogy uh, Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron used that I think is a good one in the way of the master is you got a dark room that's filthy, dust filling all the corners, and you can't really see how dusty that room is when it's in the dark. It is not until you turn on the light and all of that dust and filth is exposed and you can look at the corners and see really how, how filthy that room is. And the law is that light to expose our filthiness to us, but it's not until the law or the light is turned on in our lives that we can become aware of our sin. And that's even what Paul said in a, in a really interesting moment. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul could talk about how righteous or in, a man, in an earthly human effort sense, he'd been that according to the law, he had thought he was righteous or blameless until he saw that the law said not to do what, and then he recognized his sinfulness. Does anyone know? What was the sin that, that convicted him? He, he saw that man isn't to covet, that covetousness is a sin, and he'd kept, it seems, all the external commands, but this internal one in the heart uh, he was struck with conviction that he had coveted. And I don't know what he coveted. I don't know if it was uh, children, if it was an easier life. We're not told. But he had not, com he thought in his mind, at least not internally in his heart, he had not committed murder or adultery and had not lied, at least maybe 
it's surprising to me he hadn't lied, but he thought he had done all these things, and then when the law said don't covet, he realized he'd been a coveter. He was convicted of his sin, and that's the purpose of the law, to show us our sinfulness so that we see we need a Savior. And that's what happened in my life. I thought I was righteous by the sacraments that I had been observing for 20 years, some number of those years serving as an altar boy, going to church fairly religiously, hundreds or thousands of rosaries that I had prayed, and kneeling by the side of my bed most, most nights reciting my prayers, believing I was righteous by this, um, not knowing that I was this terrible sinner who needed the forgiveness that was afforded through, through Christ. So Romans 3.20 makes that clear. Now, because we can't be justified by the law, we justified another way. If we can't be justified by the law, we must be justified another way, and that is by faith. And so Galatians 3.11 goes on to say, for the righteous shall live by faith. So if we read it together, it's evident no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote of Habakkuk 2.4. So those who are justified are done so by uh, versus works for obedience to the law. Then Galatians 3.12. Any questions on verse 11 before we move on? Okay, Galatians 3.12, Paul says, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This is a quote of Leviticus 18.5. Uh, and it's juxta- Paul does a pretty interesting question here that you're going to be living one of two ways. And I hadn't really noticed this, and I've even taught on these verses before until this past week, that Paul juxtaposes two different ways of living, and you're, you're living one way or the other. That he shows in these verses. Huh? Yeah, you can live by faith. And what's the other one? You can live by faith. You can live a life of faith. Can live a life of works or obedience to the law. So puts in verse, he talks about living by faith in verse 11, then he talks about living by works um, in verse 12. The one who does them does the works of the law, live by them. And I kind of, I think here is what's in view. Paul is basically saying, if you want to be saved by the law, then you better live it perfectly, which any reasonable person is going to say, well, I can't do that. And then they're going to recognize that that's not the way that they want to live. It would be the ultra-prideful person who would actually think that they could keep the law to be saved or be good enough to get to heaven. So the law and faith are mutually exclusive. To try to be justified or declared righteous by one is to choose not to try to be justified or declared righteous by the other. So to make that clear, if you're, when I was in my life, I felt that. I, I really experienced that. I tried to be justified by works. I was not trying to be justified by faith. When I repented and put my faith in Christ, it's not to say I didn't want to obey God or be obedient. I did, but I wasn't expecting that to save me. I was expecting to be saved by my faith in Christ. So to choose to be declared righteous by faith or justified by faith is to reject attempts to be saved or trying to be saved by works. Any questions or observations? Okay, now to kind of connect the dots or just bring us back to the beginning so we can see where we come from, there's still a problem, though. Even though we're, uh, we, are, we want to be justified by faith, we have still broken the law. 
And because we have broken the law, we are still what? Based on the earlier verses. We're still cursed. Yeah, we're still under a curse, right? So even though we're, we want to be justified by faith, we, are, we have still broken the law and we are still under a curse. So we have this nagging question about what's going to happen with that, which is what we've been building up to. And this will connect to the bronze serpent. So we've been, we have broken this. So either we must bear this curse or someone else must be a curse bearer for us. Either we bear this curse or someone bears this curse for us. But if someone was going to be a curse bearer for us, then what, what do we know must also be true about that person? If someone would bear the curse for us, what do we know must be true about that person or they would be unable to bear the curse for us? They could not be cursed themselves, right? Does that make sense? You can't, if, it's, if you kind of picture a courtroom scene, rare would be the parent that if they had a child guilty of some crime and were going to be you know, punished, rare is the parent who wouldn't raise their hand and rush to the front of that courtroom and want to take the punishment you know, for their child. But if you were to apply, put God in that courtroom and you're trying to rush forward and say, like, you know, like Paul said, on, that he would go to, I mean, it's an astonishing statement. Paul is the New Testament example, Moses the Old Testament example. Absolutely astonishing that they said they would go to hell because of the, their, the love they had for their people. I mean, I, I, it's an unfathomable thought, and they could say that truly, that they would go to hell if that meant the salvation of the Jews or the Israelites, the Israelites in Moses' case, Jews in Paul's case. But they can't. Why can't Paul and Moses do that? Because they're sinners who are under God's wrath themselves. They are not innocent individuals who could, who could they have the wrath of God hanging over them as it is. They can't step up and say that I will receive the wrath of deserve God's wrath themselves. And so the only way that someone could take the curse that we are, that hangs over us is if there's no curse hanging over that person. If that person had lived a perfectly righteous life, obeyed the law perfectly, and was innocent and was not under the curse themselves, which obviously brings us to Christ and which then brings us to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So just like he became sin for us, he became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this is a quote of Deuteronomy 21-23. So Paul quotes from Deuteronomy both of these times. The law perfectly is under a curse. Also quotes from Deuteronomy, person hangs on a tree would be cursed. Now, I've heard this a couple times. Um, I've never spoken to a Jew and been told this, but some, some people, some pastors or uh, people in have communicated this, that one of the main reasons that Jesus is rejected as the Messiah in the Jewish mind is they can't imagine that their Messiah would be what? After Jesus hung on a tree, if they were already in doubt about Jesus being the Messiah— for any number of reasons. He didn't look like the great reigning king. He's walking around, you know, on dirt roads. He's, in some of their minds, breaking the Sabbath or breaking the law. And so they have all these reasons they reject Jesus as the Messiah already. 
but like the last or worst straw would be when he hanged on a tree. Because they look at that and they say, there's no way that Jesus could be our Messiah if he's hanged on a tree because any Jew that knows the law knows that Deuteronomy, that, that Moses said or God said through Moses in the law, that cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. And their Messiah cannot be a cursed individual. But that's the beauty of this, is if, if Christ wasn't cursed, then we're cursed. It was only in Christ being cursed that we could be alleviated of that curse or have it lifted from us. And so what is actually the, the point about Christ that plagues the Jews so greatly is actually what's so beautiful to us about him. The, the stumbling block for is what is is what we're so thankful for. Be our sin bearer and our curse bearer. And so in their same law, it says that if someone hangs on a tree, then they are cursed. And Paul takes that and shows us why Christ had to be hanged on the tree for us. Any thoughts? Yes, Ali. Talk over your shoulders so everyone can hear. I do. Yep, it's been good. Huh. I had heard that. I had heard that. Yeah, it's So it's just it's just amazing that there was scripture to say Messiah would suffer on account for us. But they they even forgo reading that scripture in their scripture Yeah, and it, and you it begs the question, you know, why would they do that except that they know it testifies so strongly of something they want to reject or deny, find themselves the difficulty. I'm not insensitive to the dilemma that these Jews face, that you have what seem to be uh, irreconcilable. Seem as though they cannot be reconciled. You have a Messiah who is what? In, in Psalm 22, beaten, abused, I mean, the address about pl- part of his beard being, being plucked out and just the, experiencing the, you know, pierced for our transgressions, the most horrific. And then you've also got prophecies about a Messiah that's what? Worshipped, adored, revered. If you see a type through Solomon, you see the ends of the, the, ends of the earth come know that he brings them to their golden years and how much greater it'll be under under jesus when the messiah or when the messiah comes in the ends of earth coming to worship him and hear his wisdom and so how can he be bold and and two comings not see that and rejected them so any thoughts or anything before we continue Okay, this word for cursed, or actually, excuse me, the word for redeemed, oh, I'm going to butcher this, but exagorazo, which speaks of buying a slave's freedom, buying a slave. And Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. When he took the curse for us, he purchased our freedom from sin and 
can you see why I want to look at these verses or the relationship they have to the bronze serpent? When Christ, I think Numbers 21 with the bronze serpent, beautifully foreshadows Christ being cursed. The fiery serpents sent as this curse against Israel because of their sin, right? Up until then, with the exception of the 12 spies, we've seen God respond so uh, graciously to the Israelites, to the point where Moses couldn't handle it anymore, and Moses got angry with the Israelites, where he'd previously this time so angry twice uh, in, in the previous chapter. Well, he's just fed up with them, but God was still being merciful, still being patient with them. But in Numbers 21, God had had enough, perhaps because they cursed the manna, which was a picture, I don't know if this is exactly why, but is a picture of Christ. And so then God unleashes this curse on them, these fiery serpents, and that curse was removed when the bronze serpent was lifted up and put on a tree, just as our curse was removed when Christ was lifted up and put on a tree. So just as the bronze serpent took away the wrath of God that was against the Israelites, when they looked at it to be saved, so too does Jesus take away the wrath of God against us for all of us who look up to him to be saved. Before we go back to number 21. Okay, go ahead and turn to Numbers 20. Actually, turn to Exodus 16. Sorry, I'll try to tell me how much you flip around. So now we're kind of going into the application. We started talking about last week. By the time we get to this account... We've seen many accounts where the Israelites have complained about the authority over them, and I believe they probably believed that they were only complaining about or against Moses and Aaron, but it became clear that they were complaining against God himself, which is what um, becomes, you know, Moses made, made clear to them. So here's one example in Exodus 16, look at verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel, it says, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, we should have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when he sat by the meat pots and ate bread and the full. You brought us into the wilderness to kill us. You know, if when Israel's in the wilderness, Egypt could not have sounded like a better place, right? You almost wonder why they ever cried out to be delivered from it. So they thought they're accusing Moses and Aaron of trying to starve him to death, but then Moses replies and said, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. Look one chapter to the right, Exodus 17. Verse 2, the people, it says they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? They were actually testing the Lord when they were quarreling against Moses. Uh, You can turn to Numbers 14. Pass Leviticus to Numbers. Numbers 14. Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and then Joshua and Caleb said, 
only do not rebel against the Lord in verse 9. So in verse, so verse 2, they grumble against Moses and Aaron, but then in verse 9, Joshua and Caleb said, only do not rebel against the Lord. So they thought they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Joshua and Caleb let them know they're rebelling against God. Look at number 16. Famous account when hundreds of people get You don't really forget reading about that. So this is uh, Korah's famous rebellion. 250 of Israel's leaders opposed Moses and Aaron. Um, So I can't imagine. These are prominent individuals. It would have been a shocking scene that 250 prominent leaders within the nation of Israel came against Moses and Aaron to oppose their leadership. And then verse 3, it says, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you put yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Or why do you place above uh, the lay people or above the rest of the congregation? Is there, do I need they said, don't, I'm trying not to move. I don't, I'm not a real mobile preacher here, sister. <laughs> oh, is that right? Okay, well, let's see here. Now, I, I see if, you're, if Pastor Nathan's up and you have to tell him to stop moving, but I'm pretty a mobile guy. All right, let's see if that's better. So verse 11, Moses told them, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. So they thought they're criticizing Moses and Aaron's authority. Moses said their criticism was against God. Kind of the New Testament uh, parallel, Romans 13 too, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so to resist authority, at least it's authority that God, if God has established it, if it's authority that God has put in place, which would be a key um, factor in this discussion, If it's authority God has put in place, like perhaps David recognized with Saul, then to go against that authority would be to go against God himself and contend with him, which would be uh, something that the Israelites did these times. I just thought it's a lesson for us to learn from here because we see it repeatedly in the wilderness. Second lesson, uh, Jake kind of hinted at this last week, I believe, that complaining about our circumstances can be complaining about God. I felt very convicted by this lesson, I like to think that I'm being spiritual if I'm not complaining to people in the congregation, but I complain to Katie, and I think it has it has harmed. Um, it has not been beneficial for her mentally or emotionally for me to share everything with Katie. It is not. Basically, I'll say this: I think my sin of complaining has hurt Katie mentally and emotionally. So I was very convicted by this. So when we experience difficult circumstances, to complain about them if God has introduced those circumstances into our lives, he is sovereign over them, then to complain about them is to complain about God himself, uh, which would be something that, you know, I, I've done more time, you know, enough times that I'm, I'm ashamed about it. And this account, perhaps more than any other, just shows us just how negatively God views complaining. So look in Numbers 21. We did read it last week. Maybe I should just briefly read it again to remind you. Numbers 21. I think it's verses 4 through 7. 
Look with me, Numbers 21, verses 4. Starting in verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient or frustrated on the way. So if you were to look on a map, you would see the Israelites heading toward the Promised Land, but then to have to go around Edom was to go back into the wilderness, away from the Promised Land, lengthen their trip greatly, and then before they could reach, reach Canaan. And so it says they became patient when the Edomites would not let them pass through. The Edomites were their brother nation, the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, but they were hostile toward each other, and so they wouldn't let them pass, and the Israelites were upset about this. With this weighing on them, their frustration about the lengthier trip, verse 5 says, the people spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness, there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless bread. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. It's a, this is a dramatically different account or event than the others. You, you, if, you're, if you kind of expect God to continue the pattern that he's exhibited up to this, you don't expect to read that the people complained and then God sent fiery serpents. You expect to read some, some greater patience or graciousness from God as he's demonstrated in most of the other accounts, but here he just wasn't having it anymore, and he sends these fiery serpents. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died, and the people came to Moses, so Moses didn't even have a chance to intercede for them. They immediately called out for his help. We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery or bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And it's just such a, I mean, you can almost put Christ in here. You know, lift Christ up, put him on a cross, and everyone who's bitten by sin, by the serpent of sin, when he sees it or looks to Christ in faith, he shall live. I mean, I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm kind of grieved I didn't see Christ through accounts, you know, clearer until I heard teaching on it or or, um, you know, someone explained it to me, and this is one of those times you kind of look and it's like, why, didn't I, why would I not have seen Christ in here earlier? Because he is so evident. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and then he would live. As they lived physically, we would live, live eternally. But we see how the people are complaining. Once again, what, what do they complain about here? What are some of the things? There's quite a few of them. Food. Water. At least one more. The manna, Chloe. The manna, yes. They complain about the bread from heaven. Now, how you complain about bread when it falls down from heaven, I don't, I don't know. Then you deserve to be punished if you complain about that. And so God unleashes these fiery servants on them. They complain about their circumstance. And I think this account, perhaps more than any other, shows us how negatively God views complaining. He sends out the serpents to bite the people. It's obvious he's upset. Our complaining angers God because he's sovereign over what comes into our lives. Uh, I think that can be um, maybe frustrating at times because then I, I, we might want to not see God's fingerprints on things. It's a lot easier to think God has allowed something versus caused it. That's a constant conversation with Katie, what God causes versus allows. And those two words um, have considerable, you know, if you think about God allowing versus causing something, that, that has real, real um, ramifications in your, in your spiritual life. And so 
if we see God sovereignly uh, introducing things into our lives or being sovereign over what is allowed in our life, I mean, like with Job, the type of suffering, I mean, no, no name more associated with suffering, you could say that God didn't cause it, that he, that he allowed it, but you've got to acknowledge that he was still sovereign over all of it and that it first passed through his throne. Uh, God, one of the things that sometimes could trouble people but Satan's the one who declared this. Satan actually said, you've put a hedge around him. You have limited what I can do. You have prevented certain things from coming into Job's life. And it wasn't until, and that was true. That was a true observation from Satan. He was limited in what he could do. And then it wasn't until God removed that, that hedge of protection that Satan was allowed to do these things. But I would say, as, as troubling as it might be at times to think about God causing or even allowing certain things, the alternative is much, much more troubling. The alternative is that God is not sovereign over what happens in our lives. We are simply experiencing unfortunate circumstances, and God is sort of sitting back, if he's kind and compassionate, saying what? Oh, you know, I really wish this wasn't happening to Scott, and, or this person, or oh, this is so sad, I wish I could do something about it, but I, I just can't and I'm just sitting up here in heaven, and my, my arm is too short to save or deliver. Um, I do feel really bad for him and for these other people. But So to me, that's a very troubling, very troubling perspective. So be encouraged, as hard as it might be to swallow at times, that God is sovereign over what we're experiencing, and he is in control. And to me, there can be great comfort in that uh, when we're suffering or when we're hurting. And so to complain then, to bring back to that, is to complain about what God knows is best for us or what he's doing in our lives. And complaining, I think especially for men who are the spiritual leaders of their family, has detriments to their family because then that complaining trickles down, you know, to our children, especially as a, as a pastor. Or if I complain about the church or circumstances in the church, my children could develop a negative view of the church. And so sometimes I thought, well, I'm not talking to the church and I'm not talking to, to my children and I, I believe I try not to talk to them about m- most things in the church unless I'm convinced they're going to um, learn somehow, but it has affected Katie negatively. And so that's just one of the ev- consequences of my sin that I have, that I have um, recognized. And so there are just co- complaining is a sin, and there are consequences for it, um, and that's just one that I've recognized. So any thoughts or anything? Okay. Think about Job's example. As much as um, you know, Solomon's associated with wisdom, Job associated with suffering, hard to imagine anyone experiencing worse circumstances within the short period of time because it seems like one messenger hasn't even stopped speaking before the next messenger comes in with bad news, right? And so it's just a machine gun of, of terrible um, trials introduced into his life. You know, he loses his oxen, donkey, sheep, camel, servants, house, and children in Job 1, 14 and 19. His suffering would be devastating for anyone who lived at any time. I believe it was worse for him because he had no scripture to encourage him or shed light on his situation. He didn't have Romans 8.28. He, he didn't have verses about God's sovereignty because he lived before scripture was written. Even without scripture, he still understood that all suffering first passes through God. Um, if you want to look, if you want to turn to Job chapter 1, you could do that. In the, toward the middle of your Bibles, the political books. Look at this wonderful response to suffering. I don't know that there is a better response to suffering in all of, all of God's word than what we see here with Job. Absolutely convicting for me. 
So Job chapter 1, verse 20, after receiving the news of the loss of all of his animals, his house, and his children, verse 20 says, Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. And then he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now here's what's interesting. We are talking about whether God causes or whether God allows Because Job hadn't seen, let's say, behind the curtain, or he had not seen the conversation between God and Satan, Job, Job, we might rightly attribute Job's suffering to Satan, because Satan was the one who was given the um, opportunity to do these things to Job. But who did Job attribute his suffering to? I mean, he says it. He says it there. Yeah, he says God has done this, and I will still worship him. God has given, and now God has chosen to take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, Job suffers even more in Job chapter 2, verse 7, if you look there, because the devil said that he had only not cursed God because he hadn't suffered physically. There's something um, that can be very difficult about about terrible physical suffering, which he's experiencing. He's struck with, verse 7, he's struck with these loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and then in verse 9, his wife tells him, curse God and die, which is why I believe of, that the devil allowed his wife to live. She was his servant. She was such an ungodly woman that, that I believe the devil knew. Because you could say, why did the devil get to kill everyone else and let Job's wife live? I think it's because he knew that she would worsen, increase the chances of, of Job cursing God. And pretty good evidence of that because that's what she says to him. She says, why don't you curse God and die? So she was, so it's almost like Satan says, Job's going to curse you to your face. And then Satan lets Job's wife live. And then Job's, Job's wife says, curse God to his face and then die. So look at verse 10 to see his response. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? So again, we see that, God, that Job saw his suffering coming from the hand of God, or at least God being sovereign over it. Job 13, verse 15, Though God slay me, I will hope in him. Again, Job continuing to see his trials or circumstances coming from the hand of God, even if God slays me, or though he does, though he is slaying me, I take to mean Job thought he was dying, feeling his life wasting away, didn't know that he was going to end up having much longer life. At, at this point, he really thought his life was escaping him. And he says, even if God is killing me, I will continue to trust him or hope in him. And how did, how did Job not sin? How did Job not sin with his lips? I think it's because he didn't curse God. He didn't, he didn't complain. Now, that's not to say we can't bring our petitions to God. It's not to say we can't be transparent, pour out our hearts to him. It's not to say that we can't share the, uh, you know, the frustrations we're we're feeling, the questions that we have, the doubts, um, even questions about God's goodness when we see certain things or experience certain things. It's not to say that we wouldn't pour those things out. One of the things that's nice about the Psalms is it seems to be a record of people, primarily David, who poured out their hearts to God in very sincere ways 
that at times it could almost look, almost look critical of God. Moses, at least one time, looked almost irreverent to God, and God turned and said he was his friend and said he would show him his glory. That's when God said he wouldn't take the Israelites into the promised land. And Moses is like, these are your people. You said you're going to bring them in there. Now you're going to abandon them. And basically, you need to do this. You said you would. So it's not to say we can't be sincere or transparent with God, but we need to try not to complain. Some balance there that I'm sure is very difficult for all of us to strike at times. Any questions or thoughts? Some New Testament verses, give thanks, <clears throat> give thanks always for all things to God in the name, excuse me, give thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5.20, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Uh, the next lesson that I see here in Job 21, the next lesson, I think we can appreciate it if we take our minds to the to the ancient world and what it was like to live there. Katie and I recently started going to, to Birch. We thank the office for um, sharing it with us. It's been a blessing to us. We've been enjoying it. We have so much food, or we're able to give so much food, it's like it's rotting there. I mean, they can't even get, get rid of all of it, you know? And you go in and just fill these carts with as much food as you can get and bring it home. You know, two carts, we can't even, can't even consume all of it with a family of with, uh, 10, right? We haven't had our... Uh, yeah, like... <laughs> That's why I only taught fifth grade. That's heavy math for me. How many children and kids? How many people are in our family? And so we just have so much food, such an abundance of it, especially in the United States, that we don't really appreciate just how terribly um, ungracious the Israelites were. Imagine you live in the ancient world where there's no birch, right? And you're traveling through the wilderness. You're nomadic. You can't stay at a place long enough, you know, to plant a garden and here God rains down bread from heaven, and all they need to do for this bread is to simply walk outside and to pick it up off the ground. And what did they say about it in Numbers 21? They said, oh, it's loathsome. We just despise it. We're so sick and tired of this bread. The one verse that I think gives us an idea of what it was like is Psalm 28, or Psalm 78, verse 25, describes a situation that says, man ate of the bread of the angels, he sent them food in abundance. And so it was, an, it was angelic food. It was, it was tasty, I'm sure. It wasn't, it wasn't um, you know, unpleasant. And here they were complaining about it. And so it just seems to me that God really has a hostility toward ungraciousness. And we can relate to that. If you're a parent, one of the things that has, can be most frustrating as a parent is when your children are ungracious and do not appreciate when you do things for them. And one of the things that is the most commendable or you appreciate most about your children is when they are grateful or thankful and they do appreciate things you do for them. It, it is nice when you see, when you do something for your children and then they thank you for that later. And, and it is uh, frustrating when they don't seem to appreciate what you're doing. Well, I can only imagine what it's like for God where he, he, there's, there's grace that's poured out on every person alive you know, throughout the world, and, and many of these people give him no thought, give, give him no thanks for what he, he gives us life and breath and all things, and many of these people even deny him, reject him, blaspheme him with their lives. One account in the New Testament, these 10 lepers are healed, and one of them returns, and it's just interesting, Jesus noticed, Jesus noticed in Luke 17, 18 and 19, he heals the 10 lepers, and he said, we're not 10 cleansed, where are the other nine? Was no one found 
to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And so it seems in the Old or New Testament, God wants us thankful, and the Israelites were not demonstrating that here in Numbers 21. The next, next lesson I saw, uh, they seem to become discouraged too easily. This took place on the border of the Promised Land. They were going to enter, and they were going to encounter seven nations, I think it says, that were powerful and mightier than them. And it just seems like they, how are they going to handle these enemies when they can't even handle um, basically not getting the food, that, the food that they want? Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 11. Some other verses that challenge me. I see how easily discouraged or easily frustrated the Israelites became. So Jeremiah, probably second only to Job, might be the individual most associated with suffering. He's called the weeping prophet. Probably called the weeping prophet because he was forced to watch the judgment poured out on his brethren, but could very well have been called the weeping prophet because of the severe rejection and betrayal he experienced at the hand of the Jews. He's a strong, in my mind, type of Christ in the way that he was rejected. No recorded converts. He had one of, at least from an earthly perspective, most unsuccessful ministries in the Old Testament, appealed to the Jews for 40 years. They would not repent. And so he just seems to me to be someone that if God was going to pity, you know, God would pity him. So he's at this low point, and God tells him that there is this plot against him. I should have turned there myself. So look in in, uh, Jeremiah 11. Now I need to turn there. You guys already turned there, didn't you? Sorry about that. So God tells Jeremiah there's this plot against his life. And he sort of begins to feel sorry for himself, it seems. Uh, 11.21. Look in verse 21. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, that's Jeremiah's hometown, who seek your life and are saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. So these people are telling Jeremiah to stop prophesying or he's going to be killed. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. None of them shall be left. For I'll bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth, the year of their punishment. And, I, and it just seems like it struck Jeremiah uh, more deeply that the threats were coming against, if this is his hometown, these would have been people somewhat related to him, perhaps family members that, he, that felt embarrassed by his ministry. And so they are part of this, this group that wants to, to kill him. So he says, where, I didn't put the verse on, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous... Oh, look in verse 1 of Jeremiah 12 now. Sorry, I didn't tell you the verse. So, God, so Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord. When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Probably a question all of us can ask very easily. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all of the treacherous thrive? And then he talks about how it seems that their lives are going well. Now, this is an interesting response to me. How much time do I have? Look at this response in verse 5. Or actually, don't look. Oh, you already looked there, didn't you? Sorry. <laughs> If I didn't know how God responded to Jeremiah, I would just expect God to have a little more sympathetic or compassionate answer for him. 
So this is a verse that has been dear to me for some years. I preach it to myself. I wonder if God would say this to me uh, in my ministry, not to say that my ministry would approach Jeremiah's ministry, but I, I could see God saying this to me versus pitying me. Look in verse five. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? In other words, what's God saying? Man up, yeah. If you're, already, if you're already discouraged by people on foot chasing you, how are you going to handle when you must fight soldiers on horses? And he says, in, in a safe land, you are so trusting. What will you do in the thickets of the Jordan? And then in verse, eight, verse 6, God lets him know it's even worse than he thought. He says, so just, so just when Jeremiah thought it was bad, God tells him it's even worse than that. He says, it's not just the people from your hometown of Anathoth who are against you. Verse 6, even your brothers and the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. So even his own family members, his brothers, were trying to trip him up to see him executed because they despised him so much and were so opposed to his ministry. And so I see this, and it just discourages me from getting discouraged so easily. I wonder what God would say to me if I brought my complaints to him and said, oh, well, this is happening, God, and that's happening. He, w- he would probably say, you know, Scott, if you have run with men on foot and they've wearied you, how are you going to compete you know, with horses? Or what are you going to do in the floodplain of the Jordan when the, when the waves really pick up and that's what you're having to contend with? So um, we can go ahead and stop there, and we will continue. Either, either I'll be continuing next week or Pastor Nathan will, and then I'll be on the 15th. We're not sure about that yet. But let's go ahead and stop there. Any questions or thoughts before I close in prayer? Okay. Father, we thank you for this account in Numbers. I see so much application for us. We see Christ, but we also see application for ourselves. I think about the way Israel, the Israelites complained. I think about the way they became discouraged. And I see myself, Lord, and I need to uh, not be discouraged or frustrated so easily. I need to not complain so much. Um, I need to not... Uh, you, you perhaps would speak to me like you spoke to Jeremiah, Lord, and help, help all of us to find application for our lives. Keep us encouraged that we would even count it a blessing to suffer with Christ and that we would uh, you know, think about Paul's words and that to say to suffer with Christ is a blessing and help us to view our suffering that way as something you've introduced in our lives to help us become more like Jesus, uh, something you're sovereign over, and that is a privilege, really. And, and just suffer in a small way, Lord. I wouldn't even um, would be convicted to act as though any of our suffering would approach what Jesus has went through. But we do thank you for it, Lord, and count it, count it a privilege. Bless the fellowship time between Sunday school and the service, and then be with us as we go into the worship service itself. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.